Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 this is the word to stand on for life with pastor ron arbaugh the word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of calvary chapel in san antonio a live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the bible and how to apply the word to your daily life celebrating our 10th year of ministry on am 630 the word visit our website calvarysa.com Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you need to do is call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as I remind you every day at 4 o'clock, if you are... Uh, driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, Tuesday, don't have anything going on except questions, so we eagerly await your phone calls. Here is a really good question from our email inbox from Gracie. Um, she says, my husband often looks through my phone, even though I've never given him a reason to. He has had bad relationships in the past, for I understand his distrust. I've mentioned this to him, and to be honest, it doesn't really bother me, but I feel as though it is not healthy for him to have this desire to always search for something. Can you please shine some light on the right perspective to have for both of us? Thank you. Gracie, thank you. I I think you've already got the right perspective. First and foremost, this isn't a big deal to you. So um, don't feed into his jealousy. I'll talk about that in a moment. But don't feed into his jealousy by trying to hide or feel like your privacy is being uh, invaded or that you're not trusted. Uh, I say all the time that husbands and wives should have no secrets from one another. Um, Your text messages, uh, phone call registers, your computer search histories, anything and everything else ought to be open game. And unless you have something to hide, nothing that there shouldn't be anything about that 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 causes you any difficulty. So it's not a big deal. So um, understand where he's coming from. You do that, and just don't make it a big deal. Now, having said that, uh, I also want to say, if I was talking to your husband, Gracie, I would say that. Jealousy and or mistrust are very harmful to relationships, and jealousy in particular is harmful to to his walk with the Lord. Um, this is one of the things that we've got to be able to deal with, and this is something, Gracie, that husbands and wives need to talk about. I have said to people, unless I, and you know, there are people. Let me let me backstep just one moment. There are people that are mistrustful of pastors all the time. And, um, you know, they've been hurt in a church or or a pastor turned out not to be 
genuine and it and it really hurt them and so they're i'm not going to trust the pastor anymore and what i always say is the same thing until i've given you something to be distrustful of me about then trust me now we trust jesus we can't get hurt we're servants so um unless we have an agenda that shouldn't be a difficult issue well how much more in a, a marriage a husband and wife need to trust one another. Now, let me suggest a couple of things, Gracie. First, you and your husband, I'm hopeful, are in the Word together. Uh, These are the kinds of things that you can talk about when you're reading the Bible together. And they need to be resolved. It's not okay that your husband is jealous, if in fact that's why he's going through your your phone. Um, It's not okay that, that he doesn't trust you based on what other people have done to him in his life before. Um, and he needs to deal with that. It's something that, that, that the Holy Spirit has really got to deal with him on. And the two of you can talk about these things openly and before the Lord when, in fact, uh, you're, you're going through the Word together. These kinds of situations are going to come up. But since I'm talking to you, Gracie, and it's not a big deal to you, um, then don't make it a big deal at all. Just let him know the next time you see him going through your phone, um, just let him know that, hey, my life is an open book. And don't show any hint of resentment or anything else. And I promise you, the Holy Spirit will speak to his heart eventually and change him. That's one of the things that we really need to learn to do is to trust God with these matters instead of trying to make the change ourselves. Now, having said that, I'm going to talk not to Gracie now, but to the rest of the audience. Uh, I realize that we feel violated when somebody goes through our stuff. But see, we got to get over that. Our lives are supposed to be an open book, and that's what we need to make them. So, Gracie, thank you. I appreciate that question very, very much. Here is a question. This one is from Carlson uh, from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, could you please speak in more detail on Luke 24, the story about the road to Emmaus? Who exactly was Cleopas? And should I surmise that the other person was Simon? Because of verse 34, it says, It's true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Um, Cleopas is just a disciple. He's a disciple, Carlson, um, somebody who followed Jesus, not one of the 12, certainly, but he followed Jesus, and he would have been among those who would have been the 120 uh, in the upper room uh, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, but he was a follower. Jesus had followers, people whose hearts were broken, and he was one of them. Now, we know for certain that the other one is not Simon Peter. We know that because we know that Jesus appeared privately to, to Peter, and in that particular case, um, it was because Peter, uh, remember, Peter had denied Jesus and felt like he was done. And uh, and Jesus just simply appearing to him saying, you know, I've still got plans for you, Peter. Hang in there. Trust me. And that's exactly what happened. Now, let me speculate a little bit, Carlson, because I enjoy doing this. And uh, uh, I, I, I have a very strong opinion about this. But, but let me... Emphasize, that's all it is. It's my opinion. Uh, The other disciple, the unnamed disciple, I think is Luke himself. Now, that would mean he's not a Jew. That was okay. Jesus would have had Gentiles who followed him as well. But I believe the other one was Luke. And here's why I believe that. All of the, the, the gospel accounts have sort of an invisible fingerprint of the author. On them, I just think it's sort of uh, one of the ways the Holy Spirit um, identifies that He really is the author behind all of this. Uh, Matthew is just the the tax collector. Um, um, he, he's he he doesn't speak about himself in the first person. Um, he's just a, a tax collector. Uh, Matthew, we know, was the the author of the gospel. Uh, in in Mark's gospel. Uh, there was a story about a young man who ran away naked uh, from the persecution. Uh, most scholars believe that that was Mark, John Mark himself. Um, remember, that's Peter's account of, of Jesus' ministry. And Mark was very important, and I think that was just sort of a fingerprint of Mark, who was the, the, the writer 
of that gospel. And in John's gospel, we have uh, John, he never identifies himself uh, by name. He identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So that little veil of anonymity. I think this one is Luke. Now, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. But I think this other unnamed disciple is Luke. And if it's not Luke, then it's obviously not important uh, because Jesus didn't tell us who it was. But that is one of my favorite stories, uh, Carlson. I have to always fight not to tell that same story uh, every Easter uh, because I just, um, I, I, you know, I love the Bible. I love Bible studies. And uh, just think about the Bible study at Cleopas. And if I'm right, Luke got on that road to Emmaus when Jesus just appeared to be a traveler. They didn't recognize him. And um, when they said, we thought he was the one, and and Jesus basically said to him, how slow you are to believe what the prophets, or literally all the prophets, have written. And he began right there to go through the prophets with them. Can you imagine that Bible study? And we know later that their hearts were burning within them. If you've ever had a, a Bible study experience where the, the Holy Spirit was speaking so clearly to you, you understand this. And uh, I like to think what it was like when Jesus was going to pretend to go on farther and they invited him to, to sit down and eat with him and he took the bread and broke it. And when he broke the bread and handed it to them, their eyes were opened. In other words, the Holy Spirit illuminated who Jesus was. And that would have happened, of course, because they would have seen the scars in his hands. And I love that story a lot, Carlson. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Dewey. Dewey says, Pastor Ron, can you go in-depth on what's going on in this scripture? And the scripture is 1 Kings chapter 13. Uh, why did the old prophet lie to the man of God to come back and eat with him? Why did God still punish the man of God, even though he was lied to uh, by the old prophet to get him to come back to eat and drink? This is one of the stories. I've got one coming up, not, not tomorrow night, but the following week. Um, uh, Dewey, um, uh, you know, when when Elisha was called a bald head and a bear came out and mauled him. There's stories in our scriptures that really confuse us. We're looking at them from a, a Western perspective, and, and we just think they're harsh. And this is one of them. Um, the old prophet. Now, now, let me say clearly, first of all, we're all responsible to be obedient. And this principle to whom much is given, much more is required that Jesus spoke about in his ministry uh, applies here. This was a man given directions by God himself. Go do this and don't do this. And he's expected to deliver the message as he was supposed to, but he was also expected to be obedient. Don't go back the way you came. Just get the other direction and get out of there. God was trying to warn him. Maybe about this man. So we've got this old, certain old prophet. I love the, 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 the description. Just a certain old prophet. He's not ID'd. Um, and um, he lives in Bethel. And this is really where the story begins. Uh, this, this problematic story in this chapter. Um, he's living in Bethel. Uh, evidently retired from his service as a prophet. Um, I don't know why he would be retired. God can speak to old people as well as young people. But there was a reason that he had removed himself from doing the work of the Lord. Um, but here's the problem. By his inactivity, I want everybody to hear this, by his inactivity, he's been compromised. It's sort of like he's out of the loop. You know, the Bible's careful to omit any activity for the Lord by this old prophet. So, if if he was the one opposing the false religion nor the kingdom, God wouldn't have had to send another prophet. So, this is a prophet who was compromised. The reason I said I want everybody to, to hear this is because when we become inactive in our service for the Lord, then we're out of the loop as well. People say, no, I can be a Christian. I can do this without going to church, without serving. You can't. I mean, you can go to heaven, that's for sure. But 
um, um, honestly, we, we need to be involved every day. That's how the Holy Spirit flows through us. One of the real tragedies that we've seen in the aftermath of COVID and, and the quarantining is that people have fallen away from church and they never have come back. Now, fortunately, that's not true for us, but it's true for so many. It's also true for a bunch of churches that close. We're getting their people now. See, if you fall away, you're out of the loop. And that's what was uh, the case with this man. And when we're not doing anything, when we're inactive, the enemy is there to, to, to destroy us. So all of us, we need to finish well. We need to be about the business the Lord has assigned to us. And that's exactly what was going on in this case. Now, when the prophet said to him, come home and eat with me, the man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. Uh, I have been told by the word of the Lord. This is accountability. You must not eat bread or drink water there at return by the way you came. So this prophet is pronouncing his own judgment. He knows what he's supposed to do. He knows what God has commanded him to do. Uh, so he understands what God said. He is accountable. And one of the things that we all need to really focus on, Dewey, is that when God tells us to do something, there is an accountability and there's going to be consequences when we're disobedient. Um, and in this particular case, the old prophet doesn't give up. Uh, so he sort of says, well, I'm a prophet too. It's like the people that come in and say, well, well, I was back in the Jesus movement days and, and this happened and that happened, but, but God's not doing anything through them now or, or with them now because they're, they're out of the loop. Well, that's exactly uh, what happened. So he just lies to the guy. He, he just wants to sit down with the prophet. Oh, let's talk old prophet stories. Um, and so he said that, well, this is what the Lord told me to say. Bring him back with you to your house so that they may eat bread and drink water. And then we know parenthetically in that verse, he was lying to him. Now, two things that we need to know. This prophet was spoken to directly by God. Don't do this. And another prophet comes up and says, well, you're supposed to do it. God told me. Well, this is where the prophet falls into a trap that he doesn't need to be trapped in. He knew what to do. God doesn't change his mind. I've had people over the years, do we come to me and say, well, God told me to tell you this, or God said you're supposed to do this. And I just say, oh, thank you, but no. But but God said, no, he didn't, because he's already told me to do this. And, and one of the things that we have to be is stubborn, you know, in our service to the Lord. If he tells us to do something, we, we've got to stick to that. And sometimes people come back with a uh, what seems like a better plan and, and we convince ourselves it's okay because it's what we want to do. That was what was going on with this particular prophet. We need to be very careful, very skeptical of anyone who's telling us what God's will for our life might be. The old prophet is lying. His motive, I'm sure, is just I want time with with this prophet so we can talk about prophet things. Um, but but the man, all he had to do, Dewey, was stay faithful to what God knew uh, or what he knew God told him to do. That's really, really important, no matter how convincing or passionate someone may sound. So I hope that makes sense to you. Um, at the end of the dinner, of course, the, the, the old prophet really did get a word. Your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. Uh, you're going to die. So uh, that's kind of nervy. I wonder if this old prophet had even a twinge of guilt in pronouncing this judgment against the real prophet. Um, but it didn't matter because the die was cast. Thank you for the question, Dewey. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, here is a question from our mobile app. This one is from Juan. Uh, hi, Pastor Ron. My wife has allowed her mom to spank our two-year-old son. Is this biblically okay? I told her I'm okay with spankings, but they need to come from us parents. What are your thoughts? One, I agree with you 100%. Um, um, discipline needs to be steady. It needs to be consistent. 
And if your child, your two-year-old, misbehaved, uh, then the, dis- the, the, the the description of her or her disobedience uh, needs to be communicated to you or to your wife. And then it's your job to uh, administer the uh, the discipline. So, um, yeah, spanking should never, ever come from anybody but mom and dad or mom or dad. Um, but but no, I don't think this is an okay thing to do. I, I realize that it's really hard to stand up to your mom for your wife. Um, you got to spank her or, 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 well, you can do it. No, it, it never should be. In my home growing up, Juan, uh, my mother... Um, she knew better. She she would say, wait till your father gets home. And I knew I was going to get his belt and he was going to spank me. But see, here's what she knew. She knew that she got too angry. My mom used to take a wooden spoon and just go to town. My mom weighed like 98 pounds. And uh, she used to take a wooden spoon and she'd get madder with every time she'd spank you, you know. And, and, uh, and she didn't want to do that. So she would say, your father would deal with this when he gets home. And that's torture because you had to wait all day for your dad to get home from work and all that. But but I agree with you completely. A spanking, especially for for toddlers, is uh, is an effective tool for discipline. Um, never in anger, never on bare flesh. Um, um, just it, it it's just corrective. That's all, and it's in love. Um, but it should be only for the the mom or the father. Okay, thank you, Juan. I agree with you completely. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Anonymous. Um, Pastor, is it okay for me as a parent to say that my daughter cannot date an unbelieving boy? Anonymous, listen closely. It's not only okay, it's your duty. Now, when I say that, parents all over the place and their their, uh, daughters, in your case... I hate that answer. But it is a parent's duty to keep their children from being in unequally yoked relationships. Now, I'm going to be really detailed here, Anonymous, because this is why we need to protect them. They fall in love. They get a crush. um, There's a a popular, handsome football player. and he asks your daughter out, of course your daughter wants to go out with him, but you've got to sit down and explain why she can't. Does this boy love Jesus? And most of the time they won't even know. If this boy loves Jesus, then then you bring him over and introduce him to me. Ask him where he goes to church. Ask him about his faith, how important it is. But when you know it's an unbelieving boy in the first place, this is where you've got to be pretty direct with your daughter. No, here's what's going to happen. You're going to fall for him. He's going to do what unbelieving boys do on dates. He's going to try to convince you to sleep with him, to have sex with him. And if you don't, then you're going to sort of be a pariah. You're going to be an outcast. So it's not okay ever. And this has been a source of frustration for me over all the years that we've been here at Calvary Chapel. Um, people in the church just don't accept this. Well, it's just a date. It's not a big deal. Well, it is a big deal. If your daughter gets date raped, it is a big deal. If your daughter falls and gives her body to him, uh, unbelieving boys and girls have sex. This is the time that we live in. It's not like it was when I grew up when only the, 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 the bad boys and girls had sex. Everybody has sex now. And that's what unbelieving people do. And the answer is no. And if your daughter gets angry, then tell her, well, I don't know how old she is, but, you know, you'll be 18 soon. You can make your own choices when you move out of this house. But for now, this is our house. It belongs to Jesus. And there is no possible way that I'm going to permit you to date this unbelieving boy. End of discussion. It's over. Not another word has to be said. And as difficult as that may be, that conversation with your daughter, it will demonstrate how much you love her. I cannot tell you, Anonymous, how many young women over the years have fallen in love with a boy who is um, an unbeliever. Even even those who say I'm a, I'm a believer, 
uh, when I was in high school, I had a mother uh, tell me that you're not going to date my daughter ever until you go to church. So I said, well, where do you go to church? And she told me I showed up in church. I was no more a believer than the man in the moon. But in this particular case, um, it's our obligation to to protect our children. And and it goes for boys, too. If, if, if you have a son and he wants to date an unbelieving girl, the answer has to be no. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it couldn't be more clear. Why do we ignore it? Why do we just pretend like that wasn't even in our Bibles? This is a place where the culture is winning the minds and the hearts of God's people. And it's a tragedy. There's a lot of pain. Did I say that unequally yoked relationships that turn even into marriage? Did I say that they cause a lot of pain? Well, they do. Well, I didn't know the music was coming on that quickly, so that means we're at the end of the first half of our program. We've got 30 minutes left. We'd love your live calls, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to The Word to Stand On for Life, celebrating our 10th year of ministry on AM 630, The Word. We're taking your calls at 210-340-9585. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Here is a question from Ebony. Um, What is the difference between being spiritual and being religious? Ebony, I really don't understand the question so much. Um, I really don't know how to answer, so let me do the best I can in the sense that I think both of those examples um, are are off base here. Um, There's two spirits in this world. There's the spirit of God and the spirit of everything that opposes God. We call it the spirit of Antichrist. In John's time, he wrote in First John um, that that uh, uh, they're lying prophets. The spirit of Antichrist is everywhere. Well, well how much more? Some nineteen hundred and ninety years uh, after the fact. So, um, um, th- there's either the follower of Christ or the follower of the devil. Now, here's the problem: most of the people who uh, are following the devil won't admit it. Oh no, I'm a good person, or I'm a religious person. Uh, I've had people say to me when I'd say, "Are you a Christian? Are you born again?" They'll say, "Well, well, I'm spiritual." And then the other side of that, well, I go to church. Well, I didn't ask either of those questions. Are you born again? And so, what I'd like to do, Ebony, is differentiate between. Um, being saved and not being saved because that's really the only thing that matters. I know people that consider themselves very spiritual. It's sort of like the, the, the defensive fallback answer when you ask somebody if they're, if they're saved. Well, I'm a spiritual person. Well, what does that mean? You, you, you do crystals, you're a new ager, um, you're a follower of Satan. You're spiritual. There's all kinds of spirits out there. And being religious, people somehow think that they walk into church and they're suddenly covered by God. That's not true. There is nothing spiritual about a church building. Nothing that's spiritual. You didn't ask this, Ebony, but I remember a trip that I went to uh, into London. Uh, we did a Joy of Jesus in Scotland uh, for five days in London for six days. And we went to Westminster Abbey. And uh, it was the creepiest place I've ever been. Another time we were in New York and we went by St. Patrick's Cathedral. I just had to go in and, and I could feel demonic presence. I could, I could feel the demonic presence. Um, and yet people think they're safe in church. We're only safe by being born again. So being religious doesn't save you. There's no reward for going to church. 
And being spiritual doesn't save you unless, of course, that spirit is the spirit of God and um, and you're born again um, by the blood of Jesus Christ. So um, I, that's the only way I know how to answer your question, because apart from Jesus, um, there is no difference from being a spiritual person or a religious person. Uh, religious people are, are often legalistic, you know, I do this and I do this, I offer confession, I pray the rosary, um, and none of that matters. The only thing that matters is, are you born again? So, Ebony, if that's not a satisfactory answer, maybe you can write again and let me know um, more to the point what it is that you're looking for. Thomas says, um, why is it that many Christians act just as badly as unbelievers? Thomas, the, the answer to that is so simple, because of flesh. The flesh of a Christian is no better than the flesh of an unsaved person. And and I think sometimes, you know, we think, well, somebody says they're a Christian, they should do this or they should do that, or, or they should be better, they should be nicer. Uh, flesh is not good. Flesh is not nice. And anytime you see somebody, even as a Christian, acting badly, it's because in their flesh, in my flesh, is no good thing. So what you do, Thomas, is you don't have expectations. When somebody who says they are a Christian is behaving badly, they're using foul language, or they're they're gossiping about somebody, or um, they're lying, you catch them in, a, in a, an outright lie, whatever it is. You look at them and you say, brother, sister, you can't talk like that if you're a Christian. And that's a wonderful way to open the door in a conversation about whether or not they're really born again. The truth is that even you, Thomas, if you're in your flesh, you're going to act just as badly as unbelievers do because, I repeat, in your flesh is no good thing. So that's why it's true in the way that we can um, stand in opposition to our flesh taking control is by being in the Spirit. Paul says, so to the Spirit and not to the carnal nature. And when you're walking in the Spirit, then you reap the rewards of being in the Spirit. When you walk in the flesh, then you're going to reap the consequences of walking in your flesh. It's very important that we don't have expectations because any distance away from Jesus. I've been a pastor for more than 27 years, and here's what I know to be true. If I get any distance at all between me and Jesus, my flesh is going to do its best to destroy the 27 years worth of work that I've been privileged to participate in. Very important. It's also, Thomas, why every morning I start with, Father, today of my own free will, I choose to serve Jesus. Not by might nor by power, but by your spirit in your name and for your glory. And then, Thomas, I say this, I can't even do that on my own, Lord. So to that end, I offer my hand by faith. I take your hand in faith. And I'm doing this literally. I'm putting my hand out. And then I take his hand in mine. I offer my hand by faith. I take your hand in faith. And I will not let go until you bless me. And then I say, I can't let go. I'm going to ruin everything. Thomas, the fear that I have in my life is ruining the fruit of 27 years worth of ministry. So I need to stay close to Jesus. If I get any distance at all between me and him, then I'm putting into jeopardy the work that God has done through me. And I've known a lot of pastors who've blown it. So truth is we're all going to behave badly. For us to have any expectation that a Christian's flesh is any better than it was before that person became a Christian uh, is a is a grave error on our part. Hope that helps, Thomas. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Kyle. He says, you say there are no prophets today, but it seems to me like this is the time when we need a prophet the most. Um, Kyle, I, I understand the sentiment of your question, and I agree with it, or your statement, really, and I agree with it. Um, uh, I, I, I just got through, um, I'll finish actually tomorrow, uh, teaching uh, Elijah's life, and then we're going to go into Elisha, and throughout the, uh, the 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 whole series on Elijah's life in in our study in First Kings, 
uh, I kept saying to the church here, boy, we need an Elijah today. So I understand the sentiment. Um, But the truth is there are no prophets today. The prophets pointed to Jesus. Jesus has already come. Hebrews begins, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers at many times and in various ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, and it's literally there, in son, the, the translation say by his son or through his son, but it's literally in son. In other words, everything that God has to say uh, is finished, complete, in the person of Jesus Christ. So, um, um, that's why there are no prophets. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 uh, says that prophets uh, were the foundation of the church, but that foundation has already been laid and the church is being built on it. You don't need but one foundation. So there are no prophets today. Now, there is the gift of prophecy. Now, having the gift of prophecy, Kyle, doesn't make one a prophet. But all we have to do with the gift of prophecy, it's the, the, the foretelling, not the foretelling, but the foretelling of God's word. Uh, believe me, the Holy Spirit is out in the world, and when we, when we bring forth God's word, um, why do we really need anything more? You know, I had the question in the first half of the program about the, the old lying prophet and the prophet who was duped. Um, um, why would we listen to a prophet who is less than Jesus when Jesus has told us everything that we need to know? We don't need a prophet to tell us that the world is, is being overrun with sin. We don't need a prophet to tell us Uh, that we have sinned against God, that we are rebelling against God, and that judgment awaits. We don't need that because the Word of God, the living Word, Jesus, and the written Word, our Bibles, have both declared the same things. Why would God uh, be redundant? Every week um, at our church, um, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays, and then again on Mondays uh, for for individual studies with men and women, The word is being preached. If the churches were doing their job, there would be no need for a prophet. I think sometimes we kind of fall in love with the signs and wonders that prophets are responsible for. And we think, well, if I did this, they would listen. But they wouldn't. Even if a man is risen from the dead, they won't believe. That's what... The story in Luke chapter 16 communicated, oh, even if a man rises from the dead, they won't believe. So we don't need a prophet. But Kyle, again, I want you to understand, I really get the sentiment. Um, I think if there were a prophet today, he'd be speaking to um, Christians and pastors in particular about um, the responsibility to be faithful. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Julian from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. My wife and I are at an impasse. Uh Uh-oh. I told her I don't want our kids to have dating relationships while in high school. My reasons are because they are distractions and people don't have the right interests. I want them to graduate high school first. My wife says while in high school, they can date. Am I wrong? I told her that I have to answer to God. Julian, it's only partly true that you have to answer to God, but both of you do. And you are the leader of the household. I may think personally that you're being a little too restrictive, um, a little too protective, but uh, they're not my children, they're yours. And I'm not going to stand accountable to God. You are. Um, And your wife is going to stand accountable to God Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. You're not asking your children to do anything ungodly. You're not asking your wife to support an ungodly position. Um, so um, in, in, in this case, there's no reasonable excuse for her not to be in agreement with you. Now, um, I can tell you what Paula would say to me if, if we were in your situation. Paula would say to me, uh, Ron, why don't we pray about this? Uh, I, I think, Ron, that you're being 
a little too restrictive. And you know the forbidden fruit is really, really attractive. So I think under the right circumstances and with a believing boy or a believing girl, I, I think it's something that that uh, they ought to be able to do and we can control it. We can give them rules. Uh, we can learn uh, that we can trust them or we can learn that we can't trust them. Um, but uh, here's what I think is right. Can we pray about it? Now, I'm going to tell you, Julian, there's a whole bunch of times when I thought that something Paula wanted to do was not wrong. She never would do anything that was wrong, but it just didn't make sense based on what we were doing. And the truth is, I've been wrong. There's so many times the Holy Spirit sounds so much like Paula, and all I have to do is listen. So here's what I would do. If you were in counseling at our church, I would say to you, um, let's find the Jesus ground in this. Uh, I, I think sometimes we fathers especially, um, in large part because we remember what we were like when we were dating, um, we're, we're, we're being too restrictive or punishing, actually, our children. Um, so this is something that that the two of you really need to be in agreement on. You need to be in prayer about it. You need to hear from the Lord about it. And and I believe he will be very clear to you. But Julian, you've got to be willing to hear from the Holy Spirit that you're being too rigid. And she's got to hear from the Holy Spirit that her job is to submit to your leadership. And at least until you guys come together and seek God's will in this particular thing. Um, that's the way it's got to remain. So, my counsel to you would be, why so rigid? Do you not trust them? Have they ever done anything? You've got to build trust in your kids. And we've had it both ways. We've had it where, where the parents, with, with other people in the church, where there's going to be absolutely no dating, and most of the time, that created more problems than it resolved. And others, when parents found out that they really raised good kids and they could trust their kids. And trust has to be earned, and as soon as that trust is violated, then the rigidity can come back. So um, it's your home, they're your kids, um, but you and your wife are one, and you've got to be on the same page of this. So please seek the Lord until you get an answer. You and your wife together, you should be in the Word together. You should be praying together. You should care more about what God's will is in this situation than your own will. Your opinions, I say often in this program, have no merit whatsoever. The only thing that matters is what God wants. And on balance, well, Julian, I've just seen too many really rigid parents turn their children away from following Jesus, creates difficulties in the relationship between parents and their children. Um, I always say this. Say yes as often as you can because you're going to have to say no most of the time to your kids. So do it the right way. Do it the right way. And that's after 27 years of watching kids meet and fall in love and date and others who couldn't date. And um, God will have an answer for you. Julian, I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Phone's been quiet yesterday and today, this week so far. Andrew says, if someone gets saved on their deathbed only because they don't want to go to hell, is it a real conversion? Yeah, if they really get saved, it is. I mean, God doesn't really care what our motivation is, Andrew. Uh, what he wants is for us to be in heaven with him. And I've seen so many um, quote-unquote deathbed conversions. Um, I've just seen God moving in people's hearts um, in answer to prayer. 
in answer to prayer. My dad um, never got to do a single thing for God. Never. He was 84 years old. Uh, he fell. Um, he was in Las Vegas. Uh, it's where he lived. And a pastor friend from the church in Las Vegas go over and uh, called me the next day and said, I talked with your dad. Uh, he gave his life to Jesus, uh, explained everything to him, and it was a praise the Lord moment. Uh, I actually went to Las Vegas the next day. I couldn't get there, uh, flight schedules and stuff, any sooner. And my dad was uh, unconscious. And um, so I just sat there and prayed over him for a few minutes. And he opened his eyes and he said, Ronnie? And I said, yeah, Dad. And we talked for a couple of minutes. And I asked him, do you remember when Derek came and, and told you about Jesus? Yeah, he told me about Jesus and about being saved. And I said, Dad, you gave your heart to Jesus? And he said, yes. He went right back to sleep and never woke up again. He woke up in the presence of the Lord. So, um, yeah, I don't care. Um, why they repent. I don't think God cares why they repent. It's acknowledging that your life was wasted, that your life was filled with sin, and Jesus is the only answer for sin. And I think that kind of a holy fear of God uh, is very, very useful, Andrew. Recently, we had a, 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 a husband of a dear woman who listens to the show who went to be with Jesus, and I've been praying for him for a long time. I don't even know how long. I've been praying for him. Um, Lord, use this illness to bring him to you. Uh, And and not because of my prayers. There were lots of people praying. Um, She'd been praying for 40 years. Um, but, But my response was, Lord, bring him to you, whatever it takes. And that's exactly what happened last week. And he is now in the presence of Jesus And it doesn't matter why. God is so gracious that way. He really does hear our prayers and answer. God knows their heart. And um, remember, I think sometimes we forget that God actually wants people, even difficult people in heaven. So I hope that uh, makes sense to you. Here's a question from Jerry. What does being above reproach mean when it comes to pastors? Um, it certainly doesn't mean that we're um, perfect. It doesn't mean that we um, still don't sin because we do. Um, but being above reproach means that that if people accuse us of things, the things that we're being accused of uh, are not true. Um, you know, we have got the responsibility. James, the Lord's half-brother, said that not many of you should seek to be teachers because teachers are going to be judged by a stricter standard. Um, so um, we've, we've got to live our lives out in the open. It's it's not healthy. It's not um, a good thing to live a duplicitous life. Uh, so we've got to have our life sort of be an open book. Um, we've got to be open to people's questions. Uh, we have to live a life where we can say, along with the Apostle Paul, follow me as I followed Christ. And if we do that, then we're above reproach. Again, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. Uh, And there are people that will never, ever forget the mistakes that we make. Um, But it just means that we need to um, be able to say, if you watch me, you're going to see what a man following Jesus looks like. That's not boasting. There's no arrogance there. It's just something that every Christian ought to be able to say. So, Jerry, that's what it means. I, I would also add that in this day and age, it means that that pastor's marriage needs to be above reproach. You know, it can't be a thing where in public they have got their church face on and in private they can barely stand one another. Um, it means that their children have to be above reproach. And by that, I don't mean they have to be perfect kids or even safe kids. But it means that when they sin, then the discipline has to be dealt biblically. And consistently. So that's what it means, Jerry. Thank you very, very much. Last question of the day. This one is from Oliver. He says, I believe hell is not a real place, but a state of being. I believe we're in hell right now. Oliver, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. Um, um, I want to say... Lovingly, you're wrong. Hell is a literal place. Uh, it's it's given to us in the Bible, uh, the abuso in Greek. It's someplace in the middle of the earth, a place of torment. Luke chapter 16 
details uh, a lot of information about that place. Uh, we also know that there's going to be a lake of fire at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, and that's where people's bodies are going to be cast, and that's going to be the, the eternal hell. So it doesn't matter whether or not you believe it's a real place. It is. Jesus said it was. And Oliver, I don't know you, but I'll take his word over yours. Um, and while I say that, I would also say that it's also true that if we're trying to live a life apart from Christ, if we're trying to live on our own, then it is a hellish type of existence. And we can look around at the world that we're in right now, and you can say you believe we're in hell right now, Oliver. But but the 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 moment we would actually experience hell, we're going to find out that by comparison, the worst things on earth were like heaven compared to what eternal torment is going to be like. So make make sure you don't tell anybody there's not a hell because there is, and um, you can believe all you want that we're in hell now. But it's a pretty good place. Hell's a pretty good place if that's the case. Still got food. We've still got air conditioning. We've still got a roof over our heads. We've still got the fellowship of the church. We've still got um, other believers uh, through whom God's Spirit ministers. We can come to church every week. And Jesus is right there in the middle of our body, walking around, ministering to the people. Uh, We see lives change. um, And there's a big, big, big field of ministry available for us. So this isn't hell. This is our duty station, Oliver. Thank you for the question. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Lord willing, I will be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh, celebrating our 10th year of ministry on AM 630 The Word. The Word to Stand On for Life airs every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life is sponsored by Calvary Chapel San Antonio. Hey!